What's in our heart? What do we love? What is it that we're enamored with? Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12, verse 34 said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, whatever you pour yourself into, you're going to love. But you're going to give your heart to something. What is it that consumes you? How about people? How about serving? How about reaching out? How about praying for folks? I think the happiest people are those Christians who are involved. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians in the second chapter. And we're going to look at the last four verses of this chapter here today as, uh, as we look once again at a church, a local church at Thessalonica. And this epistle here was written around 51 or 52 AD. Paul had started that church there at Thessalonica, and then he had been run out of town, but he left his heart there. I said it before, he left his heart in Thessalonica, and I think he only left to pull the, uh, the, the, all the persecution and, and opposition out of town after him, and it actually worked. But he's, he's kind of concerned about how they're faring back there at Thessalonica. And so he writes this epistle to him, and we're getting down to the end of chapter 2, and we pick it up in verse number 17. It says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, for ye are our glory and joy. I find the apostle here writing from an obvious heart of love, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, a heart of love. But let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you now for the privilege to be in church today. We pray that you'd bless this time in your word. We pray that thou wouldst just help us to listen carefully and learn some truths, make it profitable for us, and, Father, profitable for thee as we serve you with all of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Out in Cripple Creek, Colorado, there's a a dilapidated old mine called the Matchless Mine. There's quite a story behind the old Matchless Mine involving a woman by the name of Elizabeth Tabor, better known as Baby Doe. She lured away a man by the name of Horace Doe and, and got him away, or Horace Tabor, and got him away from uh, his wife. And he was a U.S. senator, actually, at the time, and, and they married. And it was a scandalous thing back in those days. But a lot of people heard about it. The President of the United States even attended the wedding in 1880. Well, a panic hit in 1883, and Horace uh, Tabor was a rich man by means of silver, but the silver market collapsed, and as a result, he lost his fortune overnight. He died a poor man, and he told Baby Doe before he died, he said, whatever you do, don't lose faith in the matchless mine. I know there's still silver in there, and just keep, keep trying and you'll get all that fortune out of it. Well, for the next 50 years, she was seen wandering around those parts, trying to get silver and extract it from the mine, living in a dilapidated shack. And it had her heart and soul. It, it was really uh, her life, that matchless mine. 
Well, finally, a blizzard came through in March of, of 1935. They found her frozen to death in the old shack and, and never did gain anything from it, died penniless. But that's what had her heart. That, that's what was in her heart. The money, the silver, the, the fame, the preeminence that she, she once had was her heart and soul. What's in our heart? What do we love? What is it that we're enamored with? Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12, verse 34 said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, whatever you pour yourself into, you're going to love. Your heart's going to follow. It could be a number of things. So what's in our heart? What is it we feel? Our heart is really the center of our being. It's how we think. It's, it's how we uh, feel. We would say it's the seat of our emotions. We all have that emotion, the seat of our emotions. What is the very seat of our emotions? What is within our hearts? No doubt today there are some, and they're listening, and in their hearts maybe there's fear. Maybe in their hearts there is resentment. Maybe there's a cynical spirit, a critical spirit. Maybe there's a bitter spirit in your heart today. Maybe in your heart uh, is, is carnality or worldliness. That's what's in your heart. Maybe in your heart there's envy. I don't know what it is, but I do know this. You didn't have to wonder what was in the heart of the Apostle Paul. As you study and as you read this great epistle here to the church of Thessalonica, you know it was a heart of love. Paul loved. There was a reason he loved. I don't know if there's ever been a more self-sacrificing servant outside of Christ than the Apostle Paul who's ever walked this earth. And he always put Christ first, obviously, and then it was others. And then it was eternity. He was always thinking heavenly and, and onward into the future. But he served, he lived with this heart of love. We want to talk about it today. As we talk about it, we see, first of all, here in our passage, what I call this anxious desire. Paul had this anxious longing, this anxious desire. And in verse 17, he talks about it. He says, but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. He speaks here of this anxious desire that he had here. Now he mentions being taken from them for a short time in presence. Not in heart, but in presence. He had been separated from this local church there at Thessalonica. And here's what had happened. The persecution got hot. And they assaulted the house of this guy by the name of Jason. And the disciples there in Thessalonica thought it best to get Paul out of town. It wasn't his idea. So he, he drew the fire away from the church. He got out of town. They followed him over to Berea. They harassed him there. And he got out from there. And then finally he goes down to Athens. And he's far enough away. And now he's over in Corinth. And he's writing this letter. But he's, he's pacing the floor. He's, he's, he's wanting so desperately to see Timothy and company come back with a report on how it's going back there in Thessalonica. And, and so he's like, he reminds me of the prodigal father, the, the father of the prodigal son, who was pacing the floor, no doubt, and waiting for news from a far country and seeing how his son would fare. In fact, we read in Luke fifteen twenty, it says, but when he, that is the father, or the son, was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That's what Paul was like, the father of the prodigal, pacing back and forth, waiting for word from, from Thessalonica on how it's going. In verse number 17, he says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly 
to see your face with great desire. And that word endeavored means he really attempted. He really tried to get back to see him. He had this great longing for his friends back there, and he never stopped trying to get back to Thessalonica. In fact, it took him five years. It's kind of tucked in Acts 20 in the first three verses, but you find that Paul finally makes it back there to Thessalonica, but he wasn't able to get there for quite a while, but he wanted to. He cared about these people because he had made an investment in them. He had gotten involved in their lives. He was, he was concerned, concerned. And it really all boils down to one word. Listen carefully. It's the word involvement, involvement. Paul had gotten involved in the lives of these people. There's an old expression, and we say it tongue-in-cheek, but I don't want to get involved. You ever heard that? You ever said that? Have you ever felt that? I don't want to get involved. You know, back in, in March of 1964 in New York City, there was a 28-year-old bar manager by the name of Kitty Genovese, and she was assaulted by a mugger just outside of her apartment as she was going in late at night. He stabbed her a few times, and, and she screamed, and, and he ran off. Ten minutes later, he came back as she was still crawling around outside and finished the job off. But what's so sad is the New York City police found out afterwards there were dozens of onlookers in the, the overlooking apartments that saw what happened, heard what happened, and in that ten minutes did not even come out and try and help her in any way, and the attacker came back and ended up killing her. There were people who basically said, I don't want to get involved. And you talk about indifference. Now, here's the problem with indifference. If, if we are indifferent, if we don't get involved, it's easy to get detached. And this is sad, spiritually speaking. When we get detached, often we get critical. It's called the spirit of variance in the Bible. We get the spirit of variance. When we get detached and we don't get involved, we become critical and we don't care. And Paul basically cared because he got involved. He got into the lives of these people here. And he made a difference. Remember that principle we looked at just a moment ago. Christ said in Luke 12, 34, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever you pour yourself into, whatever you invest in, the heart is going to follow. You know, it's no wonder that when a woman conceives, she goes nine months and she gets morning sickness, and finally it's only eclipsed and followed by the birth itself and the travail of the labor. And she goes down into the jaws of death and she gives birth to this baby. It's no wonder afterwards it's, it's like the most precious thing in the world to her. Look at the investment she's made in it. And someone who a few hours earlier was a total stranger to her, all the money in the world wouldn't take that baby away. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You wonder why Paul's pacing the floor and wondering, how is it going back in Thessalonica? What's happening back there? Because he loved those people. He'd gotten involved in their lives. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Following the service last week, a week ago today, actually, there was a, a fellow in the back there, and after most of the folks had left, he came up to me, and we started to talk. He's new in, in the church here, like a lot of folks, and, and uh, anyway, just getting to know him a little bit, and uh, he started up, uh, he started getting involved in at least a, a Saturday morning Bible study with some of the, the fellows in the church here, and uh, he, he said, it's my birthday today, and I said, that's right, I remember seeing that. And he said, so-and-so, and he mentioned a man in the church who's in the Bible study with him. He said, so-and-so gave me a card. And I thought, oh, that's nice. He opened his Bible, and, and there was the card. 
But then he opened the card and he said, inside was this, and it was a $50 bill. And he started to weep. I thought to myself, wow, there's somebody who cares. There's somebody who's involved. There's somebody who's trying to make a difference. We have folks in this church, and they're involved in things like the compassion ministry. And they go into the nursing homes, and they meet with the elderly and and the lonely, and they make a difference. We have folks every Friday and throughout the week that are involved in, in the lives of others who are struggling with addictions and vices. And we have our, our RU ministry, and they're making a difference. We have folks in this church, and they go out weekly, and they knock on the doors of, of people and, and, and ask their children if they'd like to come to church on our buses, in our bus ministry, and they're making a difference. We have folks who clean the facilities here, and I wonder how many of us think of them on a weekly basis and the blessing they are to us. They make a difference. We have folks who sing in the choir, and what a wonderful job they did a moment ago. But that takes practice, and they give up their time, and they sacrifice, and they're, they're willing to do that to be a blessing. That makes a difference. We have folks, and I don't know if you noticed it, but the grounds look so nice here when we come to church, and everything's so mowed and so trim, because there are some who come in, and they do it, and they're involved, and they make a difference. We have folks here, and they go into the jails and the prisons here in the counties and in the state, and they make a difference in the lives of people in those jails. We have gals, and they work the nursery week after week, and they make a difference. We have folks who work with our youth. We lined up our youth here last week, and we had them give testimonies of of teen camp. and, And at the end there, you found the youth leader. And as he talked about his involvement with the young people, he broke up. He broke down. Do you see that? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be. You know, we have a, a campus ministry, and we have for 30 years here. And it was a sad day when we got building so many buildings, doing so many things. I had to back away from that. I, I originally founded it and did all the teaching up there and oversaw it. And for years, others have done it, and now we're done building. And now we have help with the pastorate. And so I'm anxious to get back up on the campus. But we've been meeting here recently and looking at this team and, and their involvement and the awesome job they're doing was encouraging. It was inspiring to me. And I'm, I'm thinking, here's some folks who make a difference. Let me just say this. If you want the warm fuzzies, Christ summed it up for us here behind me. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Get involved. You'll get that love. You'll get those warm fuzzies. We have a fellow in this church. He's all over the place. But one of his hats he wears is, is the editor of the radio station, Heaven 88.7. I got something this last week, and I thought of him. It's from an internet listener in Iowa. Same age as me, uh, from what I gathered here. And we get these continually from around the the region and around the world. But he wrote, and he said, Dear Pastor Skeving, I heard tonight on Heaven 88.7 a message you preached on witnessing. What a challenging topic uh, it is, and I thank you for it. Near the end of your sermon, you mentioned finding a tract in a laundromat as a 12-year-old boy. It was called This Was Your Life. My stars, back in July of 1972, when I was 12 myself, my sister witnessed to me uh, how she had found the Lord when she was visiting her aunt uh, and uncle in St. Louis. She gave her testimony and handed me a chick track. I'd never seen a gospel track of this sort before called This Was Your Life. I was immediately drawn to it and was very captivated by it, even more so since I grew up in a traditional religion like you did. I read through it, and I must admit to being greatly moved by it and scared. Over the course of an hour or so, she showed me various salvation scriptures and answered many of my questions and had good answers from the Bible to meet my various objections. I was floored, but there was no disputing it, for there it was in black and white in the Bible. 
I eventually broke down in tears when the full weight of my sin hit me. I can still remember it so vividly as it were yesterday, even though it's been 45 years now. I repented and asked Jesus to forgive me and to save me. You have no idea what your radio station has meant to me, the godly music and preaching. I hear everyday preaching, and you've fed and challenged me more than you'll ever know. When I heard you tonight, I just had to write to you and tell you that you made an impact to folks like me from all corners of the earth. I just wish I lived much closer to Fargo. I would be there in a New York minute, week after week. I pray for you folks out there who serve so faithfully. I don't know that we'll ever meet this side of glory, but I know we'll joyfully be in the presence of our blessed Redeemer in eternity for sure. Keep fighting the good fight, brother. Do know that your church, ministry, and radio station is having far-reaching effects and is very much appreciated. May God continue to lead you and may his blessings abide with you in Christ. He signs it, Chris, a, uh, a listener from Iowa. May I just say kudos to those radio workers and, and, and those who work faithfully behind the scenes so that people like this can be blessed. It's a, it's a labor of love, and it's a great reward, and it's what enlarges our hearts. If you want the warm fuzzies, decide to get involved. Decide you're going to get involved. And the bottom line is, friend, you're going to give your heart to something. Honestly, uh, you can give it to the NFL, you can give it uh, to the bison, you can give it to your job, you can give it to your business, you can, you can give it to some investments you're making or some old car you're fi- fixing up or, or 101 other things, but something is going to have your, your heart. It could be a gun collection, it could be something else. In fact, the church sent my wife and I on a cruise for our 30th anniversary here. And on that cruise ship, we met somebody, it was their 207th cruise can you imagine going on 207 cruises? I'd love to do that, but I couldn't imagine that. But you're going to give your heart to something. What is it that consumes you? How about people? How about serving? How about reaching out? How about praying for folks? Observation. I think the happiest people are those Christians who are involved. Paul was involved. We don't have to scratch our heads wondering why he loved these people, why he had this heart of love. Are you involved? If you're not involved, it's just a matter of time before you go sour, before you get critical, before you blame somebody else for your misery. I'm telling you, we are such sinners, honestly. It's our own fault. If we go sour, it's our own fault. We find this in Jude 121. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Nobody else can do that for you. And you'll never feel love if your heart is shriveled up. You know, for some folks, it's been way too long since they've hit an altar and an invitation. Way too long. I'm afraid that we can become blinded by our pride, our self-righteousness, and a cold heart. A cold heart. Remember how you used to feel? Remember how you felt back yonder when you first got saved? You know, we find this in Revelation 2. Christ is talking to a local church. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. We're talking about love here. And he says, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. It's not rocket science, folks. Repent and do the first works. Now, who's he writing this to here? Well, he's writing it to a local church, a local church at Ephesus, a local church that had been founded about 
30 years earlier. It's about 90 AD a year, but around 60 AD or so. Paul had started that church there in Ephesus and written back to them words like this in Ephesians 1.15. He said, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. This was a loving church. In Ephesians 3 and in verse 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye be rooted and grounded, notice again, in love. And then we read in Ephesians 4, 2, he says, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing or putting up with one another in love. And then in chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, and walk in love as Christ also loved us. You know, we often talk about the love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. I think this is a love epistle. If you read closely Ephesians, uh, you find all this love mentioned here. But now we have the Lord addressing this local church. And he says to them, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Where'd the love go? Where's the love? They needed a revival of love. Folks, if you need a revival of love, let me just say, be a blessing to someone and do something for somebody else continually. Not a one and done thing, but, but continually be a blessing to others. And I'm not asking for, for dozens of folks to get out of the bleachers and, and onto the field, but if just one, if just one would say, okay, that's enough. I want a heart of love. I want the warm fuzzies. I want to feel like Paul felt. I got an email this last week from somebody who's been in this church probably over 25 years. And, and, and I think I could honestly say they were beyond dormant. They were backslidden by their own admission. And they said, I want to re-enlist in so many words. I'm sick of this. I want to get involved again. I want to feel again, if you will. Paul cared. Paul cared. We see this, this heart of love, this anxious desire here. He mentions in verse 17 a great desire. Look at the end of the verse there. Uh, I want to see your face, he said, with great desire. In the Greek, it means a craving. I, I, I can't wait to see you again. It's the same word desire that our Savior uses over in the gospel. And he says, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. It's the same word desire as, as Paul used when he said, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And now here we find it in verse number 17. He said, I come to see your face with great desire. What is your anxious desire? What is it that you really want? Is there something in your heart and does it involve people and being a blessing? We find here the anxious desire, but secondly, we find what I call the antagonizing devil. Now, here's a warning. For those who decide they want to get out of the bleachers on the field, they want to get involved, they want to care, they want to concern, they want to feel, there's going to be some hindrances. There's going to be some interference. There's going to be some resistance. You're going to get some static from the devil. And we find here, it goes on in verse number 18, and it says, Wherefore, Paul says, We would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Here's Paul. He had been hindered in, in uh, Philippi. He got run out of town there, basically, or roughed up at the very least. Then he goes to Thessalonica. He gets uh, in trouble there. Then he, he goes to Berea, and he gets in trouble there once again. And he speaks here of what's going on. The devil is hindering us. Folks, if you are going to live for Christ, Expect the devil to hinder you. It should not come as a shock. It should be no surprise. Sometimes we underestimate the devil. Sometimes we hardly believe in him. 
But the Bible says much about him. He's the father of lies. Did you know that? Christ said in John 8, 44, that he mentioned the devil bode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar. He's been a liar from the get-go. In fact, we find him lying way back in the early pages of Genesis, telling Eve, you shall not surely die. That was a lie. They did die. They died spiritually. And mankind has been suffering for that ever since. That's why we need to be born again spiritually. We find the devil is a liar. We find, secondly, that he blinds the minds of people. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it mentions, Satan hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. Oh, there are so many masses who are blinded spiritually by the devil. And, and the light of the gospel can't even crack through as a prism into their darkened souls to awaken them. The devil has blinded them. He, he poses as light. He poses as truth. He poses as the good guy in the white hat. He inspires wolves in sheepskin clothing to preach a false gospel and take people out into a Christless eternity. He is a liar and he blinds. He does false miracles. He fools people. He also tempts to sin. We read this in 2 Corinthians 11.3. As the serpent beguiled Eve through subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted. Notice he tempts to sin. And it says, as the serpent beguiled Eve, and we know about that through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted. By the way, the devil distracts people from finding God. He chokes out the word of God, the spiritual seed. He, de- he destroys any possibility of, of faith. He works overtime. He, he makes a mess, bottom line. That is Satan. The devil is continually at work. I've got something here that I'd like to read to you, and it's actually written by a a secular commentator from years ago, Paul Harvey. Back in 1999, he wrote this. It is on the air, in fact. He said, if I were the devil, and uh, he goes on, if I were the devil, I would gain control of the most powerful nation in the world. If I were the devil, I would delude their minds into thinking that they had come from man's effort instead of God's blessings. Humanism. If I were the devil, I would dupe entire states into relying on gambling for their state revenue. If I were the devil, I would make it legal to take the life of unborn babies. This is Paul Harvey writing. If I were the devil, I would cheapen human life as much as possible so that the life of animals are valued more than human beings. If I were the devil, I'd remove the teachings of God out of the school where even the mention of his name was grounds for lawsuit. If I were the devil, I would get control of the media so that every night I could pollute the mind of every family member for my agenda. If I were the devil, I would attack the family, the backbone of any nation. If I were the devil, I would compel people to express their most depraved fantasies on canvas and movie screens and call it art. If I were the devil, I would convince the people that right and wrong are determined by a few who call themselves authority and refer to their agenda as politically correct. If I were the devil, I would persuade people that the church is irrelevant and out of date and the Bible is for the naive. If I were the devil, I would dull the minds of religious folks and make them believe that prayer is not important and that faithfulness and obedience are optional. And if I were the devil, I guess, well, I would pretty much leave things the way they are. Isn't that sad? 
And it's sad, but it's true. And I think Mr. Harvey would probably be turning in his grave now. If he saw the number the devil had done on our culture, we have a mess. God help us. You know, we find out that the devil kills, the devil destroys. He's continually working to discourage Christians. No doubt he's working on some here even right now. And he'll try and keep you away from prayer and and, uh, the Bible and church. How many has he kept away from church? And they spiral down even continually. And, and the devil will work in your heart at that time. And he'll, he'll, he'll uh, reap bitterness and, and uh, basically just get you to die on God. I have a preacher friend. And, and uh, we'll talk every so often. We know some of the same Christians. And I'll say, how's so-and-so? Oh, they're doing great. Well, how's so-and-so? Oh, they're not doing so well. Well, how's so-and-so? Oh, he died on God. He died on God. You ever known anyone that just died on God? It just died on God. Devil would have you to be sifted as wheat. And he's good at what he does. There's an old parable that says that Satan had an awards banquet. And he gathered his demons around him. And he said, what are you guys doing out there? One demon came forward. and He said, you know, I attacked this, uh, this caravan of Christians going through the desert. And I drove wild beasts on them and tore up their carcasses. And now their, their bodies are bleaching out there in the, the desert. And the devil said, well, big deal. They were saved and they all went to heaven. Another demon stepped forward and said, well, I, I uh, caused the winds to blow and the shipwreck full of Christians to go down and now their bodies are at the bottom of the, the sea. And the devil said, big deal, they're all saved. They went to heaven. One devil spoke up, one demon spoke up and said, well, I, I put one single Christian to sleep. And the, the bells of hell rang and, and the devil rejoiced over that one Christian who had been put to sleep. The devil is a busy devil, folks. And Paul said he's, he's always resisting us. He is our adversary. He's our antagonizer. But ultimately, and here's the good news, he's going to be defeated. We read this in 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And we know as we read the last chapter, Satan's going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. But for now, we're told in James 4, 7, resist him. Resist him. We can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. But there's no neutral zone, folks. We read in verse number 18 again. Paul says, wherefore, we would have come unto you. And I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And he did. He continually hindered Paul. But he kept on going. We see this anxious desire. We see this antagonizing devil. And finally, we see this affectionate devotion. In verse 19, Paul says, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Notice Paul mentions in verse 19, Our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing. He's talking about being overwhelmed by these folks, excited about these folks and their testimony and having these, these expectations of them. And he calls them our crown of rejoicing. Paul's thinking here of crowns. He's writing from Greece, by the way, the home of the Olympic Games, where they were crowned if they won something. The Bible speaks of crowns for the Christians, actually five in all. We don't have time to get in them today, but, but those crowns, we believe, are going to be cast at the feet of Christ on that great day. We read in Revelation 4.10 of the four and twenty elders, a picture of the saints of all time, falling down before him that sat on the throne, it says, and they worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before 
the throne. Stephanus is the Greek word there. They are casting their Stephanus before the, 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 the throne of Christ here. Now, Paul had uh, some exciting expectations. And he's thinking of the judgment seat of Christ here. The day when God's people are rewarded. And he would step forth as kind of like a proud father with his converts and and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ with them. And in verse 19, he mentions the crown of rejoicing. What is the crown of rejoicing of the five crowns? It's the soul winner's crown. It's the witnesser's crown. We read in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3 these words here. It says, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. It's talking about soul winners here. It's talking about Christians who point people to Christ, who share their faith, who give out the gospel, who give out tracts, who invite folks to church, who try and bring people to the Savior. And it says, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness, that is, leap people to Christ, are going to shine as the stars forever and ever. There was a uh, preacher back in the Civil War days by the name of uh, Pastor Lyman Beecher. He is related to Harriet Beecher Stowe, actually. And Pastor Lyman Beecher was asked, what's the most important thing about Christianity and and the church and such? And he said, it's not theology. He said, it's not how, how we uh, organize our churches and we structure our churches. He said this, and it was on his deathbed. He said the greatest need, the greatest thing is the saving of souls. The saving of souls. Are we involved in this? Paul speaks of standing before the Lord with his crown of rejoicing. And rejoicing with those he had pointed to Christ. He had made a difference in their lives. He loved enough to reach out to them. Do we love folks enough to reach out to them? Do we care enough to get involved so that they might not have a Christless eternity? Dr. Al Lacey, who I knew years ago, he's with the Lord now, but I was talking to him personally one time, and he said, you know, he had an incident when he was a pastor in Denver, Colorado, where there was a little handful of folks in the church that were getting a little irritated with him mentioning, witnessing all the time, and and promoting it, and, and accommodating those who were doing it. And always talking about them. And this group came to him and they said, you know, we're tired of you always pointing out those folks who are involved and are reaching out and always uh, bringing up salvation and, and, and souls and, and a witnessing. And he said, really? They said, yeah, we're, we're getting the impression around here if we're not involved in bringing people to Christ, we're nothing. And he looked at him and he said, now you're starting to get the idea. I'm not sure I'd say that, but he did. He said, now you're starting to get it. Well, Paul wasn't concerned about his own salvation. He had settled that back in Damascus years ago, hadn't he? But Paul was dead sure concerned about the salvation of others. And that was his hope and that was his joy. And if we have love in our heart, folks, we're going to be concerned as well. I want you to imagine for just a moment your neighbors dying without Christ in their future. I want you to imagine for just a moment your, your co-workers, your friends... Your relatives out there in a Christless eternity, and the worst thing about it is, there's no hope. After they die, there is no hope. It's almost more than we can think about. They have no hope after that point. And and if we have any love in our hearts, we're going to try and make a difference. Now, in verse 19, Paul says of these folks he had won to Christ, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye 
in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. He's talking about it. He says it over here in a different way in 2 Corinthians 1.14. We are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's talking about that day when they'll be rejoicing together at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're told in another place that believers are going to be rewarded on that day in one way or the other. They're going to be rewarded with, with gold and silver and precious jewels or with wood, hay, and stubble. And it's going to be tested in the fire, and whatever comes through the fire will follow you into eternity. We know that gold, silver, and precious jewels come through the fire. They sparkle better. The wood, hay, and the stubble won't. There's an old ha- uh, song that says, Empty-handed must I stand before the Lord. And it's talking here about the judgment seat of Christ. You know, the judgment seat of Christ is to be feared. We, we often think of it, oh, it's just going to be a back-slapping time. And so, no, it's not a Sunday school picnic called the judgment seat of Christ. It's not called the mercy seat. We get confused sometimes. The mercy seat is something else. We can talk about Hebrews 4 and the throne of grace and how we can approach it in the time of need and find mercy and such, but that's the here and now. Folks, this is the judgment seat of Christ we're talking about here. It's going to be a time of reckoning. And if we would stop and we'd realize that, it would sober up our actions and it would sober up our attitudes. Our attitudes. There are some with attitudes that need to be repented of. Because we're going to give an account for that when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul lived with this thing continually in expectation. And we find he had this this perpetual inspiration that one day he's going to stand before the Lord. He never got away from that. In verse 20, he goes on and he says to these folks, For ye are our glory and joy. Ye, you folks, are our glory and our joy. What's he talking about there? If I could sum it up in the easiest way, he would say, we brag on you. We're proud of you. We boast of you. We tell others of you. You are our glory and our joy. We read in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 24, Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. He's talking about how we actually brag to the other churches about these folks. And he said, you are our glory. We glory in you. We rejoice in you. We're proud of you. We brag on you. You know, it's obvious that Paul wasn't real interested in what was going on in Wall Street. And Paul wasn't real interested in what was going on with the economy. He wasn't interested in what the the latest rock star was, the latest diva was, the latest dancing with the star uh, guy is. And he, he didn't care what Hollywood did. He didn't care the outcome of the NFL. He didn't care about the latest technology. He didn't care about making money. He didn't care about any of that stuff. None of that really interested him. He says in verse 20, For ye are our glory and our joy. That's why we get the warm fuzzies. You folks, that's where his heart was. I said earlier, your heart's going to be somewhere. My heart's going to be somewhere. And we can talk about baby Doe and and where her heart was and all the greed and the fame. Let me just say, a heart of love is one of serving. It's uh, loving God. It's loving people. Paul loved people. Paul lived for people. Paul said this in Philippians 1.3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So every time I think about you, I just get those warm fuzzies. I thank God for you. And he spent his life reaching out and 
caring and pointing people to Christ and guiding people in Christ. And his glory and his joy was to see folks saved and to make a difference, to see lives changed. And Paul lived happy and he lived with a heart of love. God help us as his people to take a lesson from this. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.